You're listening to Cards and Cubes, a show about board games that you didn't grow up playing. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Cards and Cubes. We're your hosts. I'm Trevor. I'm Tristo. And this is our 41st episode. Congratulations, Tristo. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) You've made it. You've made the big time. Uh, so today in our episode, we're going to talk about a couple games we've been playing. Um, we thought it'd be interesting also for our topic today to discuss what we look for in a good game store. Uh, maybe some things that uh, we really like, some things we really don't like that we've seen over the years. Uh, so that'll be kind of fun. Uh, and then we'll wrap up with, as usual, games that are on our collective horizon. Um, but as has become tradition for the past two episodes, Christo, we've got some trivia. <laughs> okay. All right. So 2020 was kind of a weird year to say the very least. Um, but board game, uh, production was actually like better year over year, I think, than it has been in some previous years. And in particular, I wanted to do a little bit of trivia on what were the most uh, the most funded tabletop-related Kickstarters in 2020. And let's just see how much money people are dumping into Kickstarter projects. Like names or amounts or something or both, I guess, is what you're probably looking for. Yeah, both. So let's start with um, ranges first. So I've got a list of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Well, that's easy. I've got the top ten. I don't know if this is like complete data, but this is um, uh, an article on Polygon.com is what I'm looking at. And it says the most funded video, uh, sorry, most funded uh, Kickstarters, tabletop Kickstarters in 2020. So they've pulled the data. I haven't gone off and verified this independently, but this seemed like uh, it was consistent with what I saw throughout the year. So let's start with uh, dollar amounts. In the top 10, what do you think was kind of at the bottom range and at the top range of of fundraising? Uh... I think I've looked at stats before, and I think the largest Kickstarter ever was like uh, several million, I think like five or something, 10 maybe. Then um, it actually wasn't a board game, but board games get up pretty high. Uh, last year, I actually can't remember. I'm on Kickstarter a lot, but um, I'd say it's hard to say what the low range is. I bet the high range is like three, four million or something uh, for a Kickstarter. Low range, I don't know, maybe like... 700,000? That's just my guess. Yeah, for like a top, th- the 10th game, you know what I mean? Yeah, so the the 10th game or the 10th tabletop related Kickstarter raised 3.1 million. Wow. The highest, which is currently the highest funded game, board game in Kickstarter history, was 12.9 million. Huh. According to this Crazy. website. And that was Um something with lots of miniatures. Maybe maybe Gloomhaven related. No. Uh Awaken Realms. My guess is Awaken Awaken Realms uh publisher. I don't know. That's just throwing things out there. 
So what what game has to be in every top ten? Just it's a rule. It's a uh, law. Jaws of-, of the Lion, I think. Was that twenty twenty? Yeah. So well, Jaws of the Lion was straight to retail, but Frosthaven. Oh um, yeah, gosh, was I on Kickstarter, uh, and it raised according to this website. I don't remember if this is the final number or not, but twelve point nine million basically. Was- yeah, I completely forgot that's twenty twenty. I thought I was actually nineteen. So yeah, yep, I can I can believe that. Yep. Yeah, so can you name maybe two other projects that broke into the top 10 for uh, yeah. Kickstarter funding? Let's try Bloodborne. Uh, actually, I think you received your pledge of it. I think that's probably going to be there just because it's, a, like I said, game of, games, a game with lots of miniatures and lots of boxes and just really expensive. So is that on there? So Bloodborne is not in the top ten. I'm actually checking how much it what how heck? much it got. Let me see real quick. Uh, so second attempt. Let's try like an Awakened Realms game, like uh, Ether Fields. Actually, we've been playing that uh, kind of over the last couple of weeks. Some adventures with tabletop. Is that on there? Uh, Ether Fields is not, but Awakened what? Realms is. Uh, <laughs> I'm starting to question this website. <laughs> Because actually, Bloodborne raised four million. Mm, oh wait, oh wait, no, no, no. But here's here's the reason why Bloodborne was a 2019 Kickstarter. Oh my gosh, that's not even 2020. Yeah, I remember that because so Bloodborne was actually supposed to deliver in July of last year, which means that I probably kickstarted it of in July of the year before, but it didn't deliver until like December, January. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just I had the right game the wrong year. Uh, unfortunately, I kind of ignore a lot of those games that raise insane amounts because of, like I say, miniatures and lots of boxes, but uh, something else by Awakened Realms. I don't know if that uh, El- Dwellings of Elder Vale is on there as well. I don't know if that's Awakened Realms. I don't think Dwellings is. Um, I know that that, oh, I think that was a Kickstarter, but I actually probably missed that whole Kickstarter because I didn't hear about it until it was kind of, getting two people but the the awaken i'll give the point to you because you got awaken realms the the 2020 game that they kick-started um was nemesis lockdown oh yeah i vaguely remember that i don't really have interest in nemesis so i probably just kind of ignored <laughs> just it just like ignored it and forgot about it yeah that's actually in third place and it raised about 6.9 million so nemesis lockdown is the follow-up standalone expansion to uh, the other nemesis yeah i was gonna say the other things that historically have raised a lot of money have been simon games uh cool mini or not i don't know if i think they had a recent game i don't know if they did very well also that's another thing i kind of ignore because <laughs> i'll I, give you I i'll give you super. a hint simon has two games in the top 10 from yeah i probably don't remember the names of them just because one I've looked of them, at them is and... uh is an eric lang game Yes, I think he uh, he released a new game, and I vaguely looked at it and forgot about the name completely. So unfortunately, yeah, I know the kind of the publishers who do a lot of that stuff, but not the games, sadly. Strike one, no, uh, it's Ankh, Gods of Egypt. Oh yeah, that, oh, that yeah, was think... number nine with three point three million. I think I remember us discussing it. Yeah, makes sense. Actually, I did know the name, but yeah, I just couldn't remember apparently. All right, one more guess. Can you guess another one? Uh, no. Oh, 
What about like, wasn't there a new terraforming Mars? I don't think it was popular enough, but it's popular, I um, guess. I think that the Kickstarter you're referring to is like Ares the big Expedition. Box. Oh, big box, yeah. They did the big box Kickstarter, but I seriously doubt that that, despite the popularity, it it, I don't think that the pledge level could be high enough to really bump it in but let me actually check yeah i I don't know Uh, like i say there's a lot of games with lots of miniatures and that's why they go so high is because uh every pledge is like three or four hundred dollars and it's just really expensive Uh, i usually ignore them so i'm not like a fiend for those games so unfortunately i can't remember details yeah the uh terraforming mars big box kickstarter raised 2.7 million so it it did Barely not under. the top 10. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, I give well, up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. Well, you're kicked off the podcast. <laughs> no. No. Uh, so I'll just go from the 10 down. So number 10, according to this polygon.com website, uh, was full color custom miniatures with Hero Forge. That was $3.1 million. Uh, Never would have guessed that. It's not even like a tabletop game. It's just miniatures for RPGs, right? Probably. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, I'm looking at the website. It looks... I don't know what Hero Forge is, but I... Oh, if we're talking non-games, actually, I can guess that there's maybe like a table on there. Uh, you got I think it. There was a table, some kind of table. I don't yeah. know what it's called, but tables raise a lot of money as well. Yeah, so the actually the most premium that I know of, the premium uh game table they did Wormwood did a Kickstarter. Yeah, yeah. Um and they raised eight point eight million. Yep. And they were the number two. Uh so the other ones we'd had Ankh in ninth place with three point three million, Massive Darkness two, Hellscape. Oh, yeah. That was the other CMON. That was three point eight million. Uh follow up to <laughs> The follow-up to Seventh Citadel, uh, Seventh Continent, Seventh Citadel, uh, that also kickstarted about four million. Um, Wildlands from Dwarven Forge uh, that raised about four million. Return to Dark Tower from Restoration Games that raised about four million as well. Oh yeah, I remember that's like a pl- gimmicky plastic huge thingy from remake from the 80s with the electronics. I can't remember details, but I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. I can't believe they're so successful with that. Anyway, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, Gloomhaven bleeds into everything because Isaac Childress was involved with that, I think, mm. which probably helped boost the numbers a bit. Um, uh, Darkest Dungeon that from Mythic Games that... Uh, was 5.6 million in fourth place. Nemesis Lockdown in third with about 6.9 million. Wormwood uh, Modular Table for 8.8 million. And Frosthaven with 12.9 million. So yeah, that was a big year. Lots of money going into games despite all the craziness. Yep. Anyway, that's our trivia. Uh, Christo's privileges have been revoked. And now we'll just <laughs> well, go talk about it. <laughs> kind of. I got no, the I, publishers, no, which always yeah. like do a lot. And yeah, I forgot that it's not just games. Uh, tables also do well, generally. Yeah, no, I think you're fine. All right, let's talk about some games played. You want to kick us off? Yeah, sure. Uh, this 
one of one of the games that I want to talk about is a game we both played together uh, two weeks consistently, and that's Sierra West. Uh, Sierra West is a game by what's his name again? Johnny Pack is what you were saying. Uh, yeah, Johnny Pack. Um, I think on his latest games, he's actually been putting. Uh, Johnny Pack, but on this one, I think he put his full name, interestingly. Johnny Pack, P-A-C. All right. Uh, yeah, interesting game. I, uh, the, it seems like he likes uh, Western themes generally because he's done like... where he's from. Yeah, I don't know where he's from. Where is he from? I think he's from the Western U.S. I actually listened to an interview with him on a podcast lately, and he says that that kind of influenced uh, some oh, a lot yeah. of games he designed. I'm on his BG page, actually. It says Gold County, California. So he's like, yeah, I guess, uh, maybe Heritage of the Gold Rush or something, which a lot of his games feature kind of those themes of uh, Wild West expansion, Westward Pioneers, uh, Outlaws, Cowboys, whatever, uh, Coloma, Sierra West, Hangtown, A Fistful of Meeples. Uh, recently, he actually did a game called uh, Merchant's Cove, which we're both looking forward to, uh, me and Trevor, but I think it's not out yet. It was a Kickstarter. Uh, but anyway, Sierra West. Sierra West is a game where... Uh, it's kind of hard to describe, actually, what the game is. I guess it has like an element of deck building and action selection with your cards, but it's kind of fascinating because the cards have multiple elements, and you arrange them in this arrangement on your board, which looks kind of like a, a little mountain a mural thing. You kind of fan out the cards in a particular way, and through the holes in your board, you can see some icons on the cards, and then you walk along those trails with, uh, I think, like, thematically, it's uh, an explorer, and uh, I can't remember, basically two meeples. Uh, one of them walks on the lower trail, one on the higher trail. You kind of make, like, a, like I say, a mural. And then you do the actions. You do the actions in order, and the whole point of the game is to score points. The points are multiplication scoring, actually, which is also kind of unique for um, just games these days in general. Um, pretty much a lot of the points are multiplication actually and they have to do with just basically going up on tracks and uh, the game actually when you think about it is kind of going up on tracks type of a game um, uh, but it feels kind of really thematic I think the art is really good the icons are really good the production is really cool uh, so yeah that's kind of basically kind of a brief overview of what the mechanics are in the game what did you think about the mechanics Trevor I think you were mentioning that you really uh, thought they were cool yeah this is a cool game um, I, I like games generally where you kind of have to sequence things and and kind of be careful about when you do things and and when what actions you pick so the first uh, mechanic that I thought was really cool about this is there's sort of a deck building element to this where on your turn you're going to draw three or if you're playing pro version you draw four cards and like Risto was saying on those cards there's um, basically different action icons and depending on how you arrange your cards those are going to be the actions available to you and then there's like a green row on your board. There's a green row of actions and then like a, a tan row of actions. And one of your meeples, uh, you have two different meeples that are on your board. And each meeple is assigned to a row. And so you have to walk them down one position at a time to uh, 
activate things. And so depending on where your meeples are, you um, will be able to, uh, you know, boost certain actions or, or make things happen on the shared spaces or shared tracks in a certain order. So I thought that was actually really, it felt really unique. Um, something I hadn't really uh, seen before in a game. And uh, something that I think probably you appreciate is that this game is full, just chock full of combos. And your turns always kind of feel really fun, I think, because you're never yeah. super constrained, I think. Even though there's a timing element, I think the game is generally it lends itself well to just kind of things happening. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it kind of reminded me of kind of what I like about games in general is, yeah, like you say, it feels like you're doing a lot of stuff on your turns and like whether you're winning or losing, it just feels like you're doing cool stuff. Like you're getting a lot of things. It feels like you're pulling off combos. Um, the game gives you a lot of resources. Uh, every turn, it feels like you're taking like five turns because you're, you're just kind of like sequencing like Trevor saying these combos uh, another thing that's cool about the game actually mechanically is uh, it, it kind of takes the seven wonders dual pyramid concept and a uh, little bit kind of flipped upside down but you build a mountain out of the cards um, which are kind of the market so to speak of the cards you're building your deck with and they reveal seven wonders dual style basically kind of in a construction which looks like a mountain and when you remove the the top cards the cards underneath reveal the ones that are uncovered uh so that also has like an interesting kind of catch-up mechanism uh concept because you go up on the mountain using boots which are resources like actions and the higher you have to go the more boots you have to spend so the first person has to spend the most boots to go up really high and then like it just kind of speeds up. Actually, uh, that's a kind of a really distinctive thing about the game is it feels very kind of explodey, which I like. Uh, not so much, maybe. Uh, no, it's it's pretty explodey because uh, you there's a lot of engine elements uh, like the mountain, and it kind of is every engine element is just oriented to just speed up uh, uncontrollably. But the game does feel like uh, it kind of, kind of comes together well. Um, I don't know about like a runaway leader concern or anything. I think it's it's fine. But there are like, there's also these animals you can trap on your off turn. They also just kind of just build, build and build and build. And by the end of the game, you're just receiving insane amounts of resources and you're trying to just kind of cash out. But uh, yeah, re uh, overall really fun game. The other thing I really like is um, has four modes of playing, and they're very kind of distinct from each other. Actually, every mode comes with its own deck completely, so it replaces basically the whole board with a different deck. So it's almost like four games in one, so to speak, or like the same system, but done in four different ways. And we've only played the first two. Uh, the first one I wasn't super huge fan of. It's kind of just the intro game, I think, and a little bit boring. The second yeah, one is kind of... training wheels. Yeah, yeah. The second one is kind of set collection, so it's a little bit uh, cooler. I think I actually uh, like it quite a bit. Uh, still looking forward to playing the last two, and I've heard some interesting things, and I kind of glanced at them, and they have dice rolling in them, which should be weird, so... Hopefully I don't hate them because of the dice, but we'll see how it goes, I guess. Because yeah. I think you have to roll particular numbers or something to do particular actions, so that will be quite unique to try. But I think that's a really cool concept that basically 
especially for such a kind of cheap game as far as price goes, uh, especially I think it's been on clearance a couple of times now and uh, really good, uh, kind of older. That's why it's on clearance, but I think really pretty solid game overall. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny that, uh, you know, we're call it, calling this an old game. It came out in 2019. <laughs> oh, is it 19? I thought it's like 18, 17. Yeah. Uh, it's not that old, I guess, but yeah, two years. Yep. Older, yeah. I guess, but yeah. But anyway, uh, yeah, it's a it's really good game. Uh, I'm looking forward to playing the other two modes, but I was just kind of reminded of uh, I only played it once during this convention, and I I was actually pleasantly surprised. I did not expect to like it, but I did like it a lot. And uh, ever since playing two more times now, I I really like it. Actually, it's a really fun game. Uh, I don't know if it's like if you're expecting a super super serious game because. There is some like luck with cards revealing, and like I say, the upcoming two modes have dice rolling. So like I don't know, it's not ultra serious, but I think it's a pretty fun game for what it is. Also, we were talking about like the two-player game might be a little too long because we keep maxing out the game basically, or I don't know if it's just the way we play the game. But I my my convention game was a three-player game, and it felt more kind of constrained. Uh, so we you couldn't quite go up on all the tracks, do all the things in the game like we're doing. So it might have like a weird player adjustment thing. Even though BGG, I think it recommends two, but I think if you're looking for a tighter game and more competitive game, three or four might be good. The concern is downtime with four, I think, because the game has really long turns and on your off turn, you're not doing much other than planning and waiting. So I can see why people, uh, it actually says not recommended with four, which is kind of funny. Uh, I bet it's the downtime um, that's probably what people complained about yeah i think that's probably right um i think similar to other johnny pack games i've played i think his games benefit from having a little more quote chaos in the game and what i mean by that is i think that his games tend to shine pretty well when there's more players bumping into each other um and that that was kind of pronounced in one of the modules we played, where um, I mean, Aristo basically hoarded every single fish in the game and then scored a bunch of points at the end of the game with them. But even then, it was still closely scored. So I I don't know that it's like imbalanced, like you said. I don't know that there's runaway leader problem. It's it's just I think that the the game feels like it'll be a little more tight. And um, maybe a little more tension in a in a three or four player game than a two player game. Yeah, I think three is a really good number for the game actually, but two works fine as well as just maybe like we play too slowly and nicely, and we want to max out the game, which ends up happening. Yeah, and that uh, just one last comment on that actually is that um, this game actually has a candle, <laughs> but it's a uh, it's a beautiful mountainous candle. <laughs> Because the the way the game ends is there's I think five cards in the in the mountain pyramid of cards above the player or the central board, and once those cards are flipped, they're added to this stream of cards below the central board. And once the final card 
is added i think it's actually six cards um once that's added then i think the game you finish the round and then play one more round and that's it so you can kind of in a way force the game to end and i think the reason that the two-player game is longer is that you can kind of game it a little bit more to make the game last longer by pulling certain cards before others whereas in like a three or four player game because the pyramid is the same size even though the the game ending cards are in different placements i think because of how many cards are you know theoretically being pulled from that mountain i think the game would probably end faster meaning i mean in terms of having fewer turns not necessarily lower play time yeah, the players kind of control the length of the game, but it doesn't bother me as much in this game again because you can see it coming kind of well in advance uh, that the mountain is getting destroyed and someone's rushing the game, so it's fine. Yeah. But yeah, pretty cool. I definitely look forward to playing the other two modes. So, yep. Yeah, it's a cool game. All right. Uh, game I wanted to talk about is one that we have also both played, and this is Merv. The Heart of the Silk Road. This is uh, designed by Fabio Lopiano um, and published by Osprey Games. Um, this is a 2020 release. And I, spoiler alert, this is a really cool game. I like it a lot. So basically what, what Merv is, is it's an economic game of sorts where to what you're doing throughout the game is you're um, trying to either push up certain tracks or set collect cards um, or place uh, meeples in certain areas of the boards just to basically convert all of that into points. So it's kind of a point salad type game, and you're just trying to build the type of engine that will get you to the highest amount of points by the end of, I think the game's played in three overall rounds, which are called years. Um, and uh, refreshingly so far, I found in the couple of plays we've had, that I think there's multiple paths to victory, which is really promising for replayability. Um, but just a basic sense of what you're doing in the game. Uh, basically, your, your actions are... Uh, there's this uh, city square in the middle of the player board, or, or the central board, where... Each turn, in player order, you're moving your meeple around one edge of this square. And on that square, there's five places. You'll place your meeple in a spot. Nobody else can place it in that spot during the round. And there's a row of five or six other smaller squares in front of you where you will be building buildings, like putting out your pieces. And what you do is, on each of those buildings one of the actions that's available on the board is avail it, it, you'll select that action from the square you pick so each of the uh each of the available actions in the game have a certain number of representations on these uh i can't remember what they're called city squares in in this large central square just buildings is what yeah. they call them just buildings yeah so you're basically you're you're putting your meeple in a row or a column to that corresponds with the action you're trying to do. And then in that row or column, you're going to pick a color to activate, which might be your own color, or it might be somebody else's color. And this is your resource production because for every um, building that has a corresponding uh, marker of a certain color that you pick, you're going to produce resources. 
So if there's three yellow buildings in this row and I pick yellow as the one I'm activating, I'm going to get three cubes depending on what those buildings are on. And then I will do the action of the specific building I picked. And so that's how you go around an action selection. And it, it uh, and you basically just do that four times each in each of the three rounds um, before the game ends. But I thought that that was a really cool way to do action selection. What did you think? Yeah, I like that. Um, I like the way that you kind of build up uh, kind of an economy, I guess. Um, action economy, cube economy as well, because it determines which cubes you get. So I think that feels very unique every game. And uh, unlike a lot of games where the what you get is kind of preset, you build your own what you're going to get. Um, so there's kind of like a setup phase, I feel like, in the first year where we're kind of creating the combo actions that we will be taking in the future. Uh, really cool idea. Uh, I think it's also really cool that you can run the other person's buildings. I think that actually makes the game really um, outstanding because usually engine building games like that or just whatever, like worker placement games like that are kind of build your own thing and run it. And hopefully you built the best thing and because you end up running it just what you have but in this game you can actually just run the other person's engine and have like an off turn of uh, doing something that they wanted uh or that they have built i guess so i think that's really unique and really cool as far as the action selection mechanism uh, it feels kind of abstract yeah you're just like going around the board but it's it's pretty cool i think it works really well yeah and um so I, I won't go into too much detail on, on what each of the actions are, but another thing that I found pretty cool and uh, and unique about this game is that, you know, like Christo said, everybody's kind of building up their own engines by placing their color of buildings in this center square. Um, but the game presents opportunity for those buildings to be destroyed and opened up again for other players to then snatch and, and put their own buildings there. Um, and it's, and that is during the second and third years of the game. So the second and third rounds, um, every single square or every single two squares on each edge of the, the larger square get attacked from the edge of the board. So some of the, like a, the square in the very corner of the board is going to get attacked twice. Cause it'll get attacked from, you know, both sides that are facing the outside and there's an action in the game that allows you to build walls or you can place your meeples in as guards to like protect that square so if you're if your building is protected uh meaning either it's protected on all vulnerable sides with walls or it has like a, a soldier meeple in it then it won't get removed but you also have the chance if the, if your building's getting attacked and it is not protected you can pay a ransom to i guess the city ransackers by playing a cube that matches the color of the building tile i thought that was really cool because it 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 forces you to think about not only building your engine but protecting it as well yeah, the first game I was really conservative, uh, but the second game I tried to be more aggressive and maybe it was a little bit too much. Uh, yeah, you do have to think about protecting your buildings. The cool thing about it is the every building scores you one point, so just having more buildings is just better overall. But like Trevor's saying, you should protect them, I guess, to not lose them. Otherwise, it's kind of... Actually, it's not a huge waste, I guess, but uh, it is better to actually like protect what you've built, obviously. 
Yeah, because I mean, you can always build back, assuming that you're the one that gets to that row first. Yeah, that's but the, the catch. but the trade-off there is that to build back, you have to pick that building, right? So it, it may not be an action you want to use that turn. So it's kind of a, it's it's not game-ending. I think if one of your buildings is removed, and towards the end of the game, maybe you don't care because it's one point versus whatever you, whatever else you can do with the resources that you would have spent to protect that building. Um, but yeah, it, it does present some tension. And in a higher player count game, we recently played a four-player game. I think everybody did a pretty decent job at keeping all their buildings on the board. So actually, the um, the engines were kind of really well protected, and um, it, there wasn't much opportunity to really increase your point scoring in terms of buildings. I think I built five, and I could never get above that because people were doing well at keeping their buildings on the board. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, speaking of player count, two is actually really good because it's basically a three-player game with this bot that you both control kind of in a really good way. Uh, three-player game, I think I would like a lot. Uh, Four-player game would feel felt like kind of a lot of uh, kind of just kind of very tight game, and you're basically splitting the same board but between four people instead of three, effectively. So it just is really difficult to uh, build up a lot of buildings in a row i guess and like have uh, j there's just a lot more competition for everything on the board so um i think it was still fine but maybe i think three is what i would maybe prefer for that game but we are yet to actually play with three live people we've played two people plus bot which is kind of like a three-player game but not really but i think it works well it works very well at any player count including two actually it works really well at two yeah i, I think that um I think I'm going to enjoy this just as much at three as I did with four as I did with two. I I think every player count in this game works really well. Yep. So that's um, Merv. I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to yeah, add. Yeah, I was going to say just uh, it is kind of a weird game. Like The designer has a lot of history of creating these games where basically there's a lot of cooperation. Um and uh, started with Kalimala, and it actually went through Ragusa, as was his next game, and then Merv. Um, actually, I think that's all the games he's done, which is crazy. Only three games. I felt like, I don't know, it feels like he's been around for a longer time. But uh, Kalimala was like really obvious, uh, basically, one when you're helping someone else, because the, the entire game is placing these discs on top of a board, and like if you place on top of someone else's disc, they get to do the action as well. So it's like really, really obvious who you're helping and when. I uh, didn't like it so much. Ragusa, uh, same thing. You kind of build next to people and they get uh, their the activations that you activate. I think the hexes which you activate, if I remember correctly, they also get it if they have a building there. So again, kind of obvious, but there's more of an incentive to actually go like somewhere else. You know, Kalimala, I think the actions were locked to where you kind of had to kind of help people. You, the game was basically kind of forcing you to help people. Ragusa, um, kind of less that way. And I think this is like uh, kind of an evolution of his designs. I think this is really well done to where if you are activating someone else's buildings, yes, they get some resources, but it's not like, it's not quite uh, 
like the exact same action, which was Kalimala's approach. So they get a little bit less than uh, just like a full activation or something. And uh, there's more game going on if you've played Dragusa. I think Dragusa was kind of divided. I actually like it. Uh, generally, some people kind of didn't. So it's kind of has mixed reviews. I think Merv is like the best evolution of this type of design where you are helping other people by doing like activating their buildings but not so much i think it's just like just the right amount of uh compensation for basically their buildings being also blocked uh which is maybe why why the design works so well is they can't just like activate them again because you just block them so really good overall i think uh maybe it's his best design so far and i'm excited for the future games he does but it is uh her last play specifically <laughs> reminded me of uh that you are playing kind of a game where uh someone can just kind of really block you or help someone else or you know what i mean like just kind of yeah. in that type of game uh the cooperation can also be kind of take daddy because two people helping each other and then the other two people are kind of struggling so there's uh, this weird vibe of uh, it's almost like shares i guess i think of it as like uh, shares shares incentives whatever shared incentives whatever people call it but um uh, i used to kind of i don't usually like those games but more of is really well done i guess is the summary of all that yeah no i i agree i think um the the cool part of of what this adds you know yeah there's sort of a symbiotic relationship where you know you're building engines and other people can activate them and they can benefit you in certain ways and i think that adds a cool tension to your decisions of well i can go to this row and i can pick that color which is really good for me, but it's also pretty darn good for that player. So is there a way that I can do this without necessarily giving that person the boost, which is, I think, an interesting decision point. And it works really well in Merv because you can be blocked out of your own engine, but there are sort of residual benefits from people using your engine if you've done it right. And I think that there's always... Uh, the ability to do something pretty decent because where you built your engine other people did not build theirs so the chances are you're able to do something that's decent in, in, yeah, in yeah. any case um, uh, but yeah really cool game where you play lots of mini games there hasn't been one with like a central game to play mini games that's been really good for a while and i think this is kind of a return to it reminds me of kind of like prodigal's club actually which you recently received and will play in the future but like really good game where there's a kind of a simple uh relatively simple i guess uh, central driving mechanic to play like several mini games around that yeah um and just uh, quick mention i actually didn't know he so merv came out in 2020 there was also another game he was involved with called mushrooms by mail that came out in <laughs> yeah, uh, i was so, looking at that <laughs> that's like a drug delivery service i don't know uh but so that looks like a two-player game but i actually knew of another one that's coming out this year i believe called zapotec with board and dice and i'm really excited to see that uh to try that one out because i've i've really enjoyed board and dice games lately and loved merv so i'm i'm excited to see what he does with uh with another design but anyway yeah that's merv yep all right uh curious cargo um we played this over the last couple of weeks as well uh the funny thing about this game is we played it last week and uh 
we had a really weird experience where we weren't sure if we actually played it. Um, so very, very interesting experience. <laughs> uh, the game is by the pipeline uh, designer. Can't remember his name either, but it, uh, it just really reminds me of Pipeline because it's uh, the same kind of mini game of pipes, arranging pipes in a kind of a spaghetti. It's <laughs> Ryan uh, Courtney. Yeah, Ryan Courtney uh, in a gosh, what a what a like a puzzle or something like a spaghetti puzzle of trying to connect pipes in pipeline actually actually it's all about kind of length of pipes uh in cargo okay, i want to keep want to call it cargo noir but it's not cargo noir curious cargo in curious cargo you're not just uh, making long pipes like you were in pipeline you're making pipes that connect specifically by color to from a source to a destination so even more complicated i guess so i was actually kind of hoping that it's kind of like pipeline because i did enjoy the uh very few times where you got to play that pipe mini game uh whatever from pipeline so i was hoping that it's kind of like that mini game but lighter and actually it's not that much lighter it's uh, still very very complicated and that's why i'm saying that we almost didn't feel like we played the game the previous week because we basically both tried to play that mini game and like make lots of connections before we actually started delivering to these trucks which is actually the point scoring opportunity and the game ended by the tiles running out and there was no winner because you have to deliver at least four goods which was absolutely hilarious we were both like what the heck and uh the uh, it doesn't seem like much actually but that mini game is really complicated like you're just kind of sitting there for like two three minutes at a time and just staring at these tiles and really trying to make use of the weird kind of uh designs that you're getting or the weird shapes that you're getting because uh you usually want like specific turns and straight lines and whatever but you definitely don't get uh, specific turns and straight lines you just get like a, a random weird tile that you have to make work somehow and sometimes it's like a u-turn and basically just or a the lot same of tile or the <laughs> same tile yeah that's that's always funny when uh you pull the same tile so actually that's another stark difference from pipeline is pipeline it's uh the tiles are visible in the middle so kind of more control over what you're getting then this game you pull tiles from a bag which is kind of i'm still not sure if it's really uh, uh very fair so to speak but like i say i think the game that you play is really actually complicated um it seems like easy and no no big deal to connect uh, specific pipes to specific places but actually it ends up being really like brain burning uh so also coupled with random pools kind of questionable but overall um i think the second game was way better because we actually had a winner and like actually the game worked because we weren't trying to hyper optimize our boards and we just kind of made do with uh, whatever we had and we were actually playing trucks and like delivering goods and the game felt like it was working uh to trevor's point actually he didn't feel like the game even like worked the f the first time so anyway yeah any comments about our first play trevor yeah Super exciting. so after after the <laughs> First. We were both just like so confused <laughs> at the end. We're like, what? Yeah, well, we. one thing is we were playing it at like two in the morning. 
or one in the morning. Yeah. So that was just like, you know, you're kind of a little giggly or whatever <laughs> at that point in the morning. Um, but yeah, I, I think that the, the sentiment I came away with after our first play was, I'm not even sure if this is a game uh, because all we did the whole time was pull tile. Well, that doesn't work. So you try to make things work and we have like t- tiles stacked upon tiles just to try to get the network to work. And then no uh, no goods were ever delivered to my side of the board, I know. So I never even had the opportunity to receive any goods. <laughs> um, and I think I put some goods on a truck, but never sent them your way either. <laughs> so um, it, it just felt like like uh you know we didn't get any rules wrong and so i was just confused of well what is the deal like th- this game doesn't feel fun it doesn't feel like a game so second time around i tried a strategy of okay let's just build a couple of connections i'm not going to try to push up to get like seven eight nine connections whatever so i just did like three or four and then i just started sending trucks Right, and so it it introduced this mechanic of okay, I want to get my tri- I want to get my goods out of my out of my side of the board and over to you, but then I want to keep sending trucks so that you can't snatch them up and have them on your delivered side. And I think to an extent, we both started to try to do that, and the game started to work at that point. So I think you have to kind of fight if you have this um, desire to like build the perfect network of tubes, I think you're not going to have a fun game. You kind of just have to, um, and it's, that's really, I think the nature of drawing these random tiles, you have to make whatever you, whatever you get, you just have to make it work. And then you just have to send stuff. Um, And that, uh, that really, I think is when the game starts to work and, and uh, you know, like you've said before, this game doesn't have any guardrails. It doesn't have any training wheels, so it will let you fall on your face hard. And so you just kind of have to kick, try to get it moving and kick it into gear and, and just make it go. And then that actually turned into a pretty fun game, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of enjoyed it. I think it has potential, uh, I definitely need, like, it kind of, I was actually thinking past the game, just kind of uh, about pipes, kind of the same way as pipeline, I guess, just kind of uh, pipe shapes and <laughs> what, what, how uh, how to basically do it better. Uh, actually, I think that's kind of the core of the game is the rest of the game is kind of mad, like, you just, like, there's two phases. One of them is building the pipes, which I think is basically the game, and the other game is like sending trucks, which I guess you can try to like time them correctly, so we're like shape them correctly, but they're pretty random. So I think basically, if you build a really good pipe network, I think you're gonna have a good game, which um, is where the game's at. Like I say, so it just feels yeah. like like ninety percent of the game is actually building a really well built pipe network. And yeah, I think there's a lot of, um, like I say, it looks very simple and not much to it. But once you start actually playing with the pipes uh, and struggling with the shapes, you kind of see that the, um, you need practice, I guess. <laughs> or at least <laughs> yeah. I, and I felt that way with, uh, with the whole concept of like laying down the pipes correctly. Yeah, that's true. And it, you wouldn't guess it from the size of this box and like the estimated playtime, but there really is I I'm 100% convinced there's a pretty steep learning curve yeah. for this game. 
um, for it to work. And, you know, the, the truck game, another thing about that, too, is that it is so hard to get truck cards. Um, at least... <laughs> at least it has been so far maybe maybe once you get pro there's like uh there's you know truck your truck card economy will improve and you'll have lots of options um but i found that i i really struggled to get more than two cards and so it was always okay this truck is not ideal but i need to get the trucks moving um and so i'm not going to be able to load a truck from every tube on my side but i'll load some and that's good enough i guess because that yeah. that actually ended the game i think um, by yeah. sending enough goods yeah especially your first game i feel like you should just kind of go with it and uh not try to perfectly optimize because yeah we did not have a good time trying to perfectly optimize uh we ran out the tiles and the game ended without the winner so pretty hilarious uh there's been some criticisms of the game being not as streamlined there's a lot of like weird kind of action economy things like you can exchange two tokens for a trucking token and two trucking tokens for a splitter and you have to spend a token to place the splitter and stuff uh people have complained about that but i think like uh basically after two games we're pretty used to the flow of the game at the beginning it is a little weird and also like there's some really weird scoring decisions like on your shipping board for example you score the right most exposed space on the right the receiving board you score the right most filled space uh so it's like full of these like weird things just in general um maybe a little bit prototypey or something but like i say minor complaints i think basically it's fine <laughs> it's fine just uh <laughs> glowing yeah, just, review it's fine <laughs> uh after a couple of games you'll get used to the quirks basically it's a little quirky i guess i should say uh but that's it's fine uh, also i should say it's only a two-player game so curious cargo is only two players unlike pipeline which is four up to four um i think it works well with two as well but yeah but uh the first game was really weird the second game i think i like it quite a bit and i will continue playing it. it's pretty cool uh yeah i wasn't a fan of pipeline i should say uh so i was looking for like a kind of a lighter experience of pipeline and this i don't know if this is really it it's just kind of a different game with pipes <laughs> that's probably a better way to describe it <laughs> but it's uh it's good i i enjoy it for what it is yeah, I haven't played Pipeline yet, so I'll let you know after I finally get that to the table. Yep. All right, uh, really quickly before we move on, I just wanted to uh, sort of mention a group of games that I played. And the reason I say group is that I've, you know, I, I don't play many solo games, but I've kind of been getting into it because there's some games that I want to play more, but it's hard currently to get them all to the table. Um, so over the past couple of weeks, I played Bonfire, Lost Ruins of Arnak, and Pax Pamir, um, all in the solo mode. And I just wanted to highlight something that I liked. I think that each of them does pretty well. And that is that I, I'm finding that I enjoy a solo mode that simulates the play of other of another player or other players. Um, so for example, in Bonfire, the AI player, whose name is Tom, I think, or Tom, because automatic, that's what the <laughs> book says. <laughs> uh, so the, there's a small behavior deck that basically has the AI player 
um, take the bonfire tokens from the island board. Uh, it sends the gnomes to the great bonfire to sort of like take up color spot or spots there. It can also take like the um, the neutral uh, gnome actions, right? So if it gets five yetis or guardians first, it's, it can send that to the bonfire. Um, it takes the engine building cards. I think they're called specialists. Um, so it takes those cards. Um, it takes the path cards or path tokens, right? That your guardians walk along around the edge of your player board. So it, it simulates other players. Or, or I think in this, in Bonfire, it's really just one other player. Um, because if it maxes out a certain action, then it just starts getting points. Um, so I, I thought that that was really well done because it simulated the game as if I were playing with someone else, and I liked that. Um, Lost Runes of Arnak did the same thing, except it felt like I was playing with four people. Um, because what the AI does in that game is it has 10 behavior tiles, so you're just drawing a tile each of its turns, and it has all six um, worker meeples for the non-player colors. And basically, it's going to be sending those workers to spots on the board. Um, and it sends them to like the most ideal spot. So you might flip a tile and it says, okay, send this worker to a spot that gets a blue gem. And it's going to send it to the best spot on the table on the board that has that icon. So it's it's simulating other players competing for the good spots. It also um, buys cards frequently. So it cycles the card market really efficiently. Um, it sends a research marker up the research track that takes bonuses and gets rid of the assistant t tiles. So it really simulates quite well, I think, um, a game where you're playing with other players. So it, it felt, even though I was playing Lost Ruins of Arnax solo, it felt like I was playing with other players, and I thought that that was cool. And Pax Pamir does the same thing. The bot is a little more clunky in that game because the game is kind of a little more complicated in terms of what a player might do on their turn. So it's maybe not quite as straightforward as Bonfire or Lost Ruins. Um, and there's like a card hierarchy card that uh, tells you what the bot takes and where it places things and what it does. So it's a little more complicated and not as streamlined. But I, I'm finding that I really enjoy solo games that have the AI player do do that, simulate the play of other players. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's really good to actually have something like that. The alternative is uh, points, and those games don't usually feel really lonely uh, when you're just pay playing the same game by yourself without any resistance, and you're trying to get some kind of a high score. Those games are always kind of boring, just really just kind of boring yeah. to me. And that's that's exactly how I also have recently played Newton a couple of times. Um and that's exactly how it is. You're playing just by yourself. There's no interaction. There's no AI, no nothing. It's it's just you playing the game. And it's fine, but it I think it would be... And I mean, <laughs> Newton is kind of a bad example because that's kind of a solo game anyway, even if you are playing multiplayer. Um, but I, I've found that it's it's more enjoyable in the context of these games that make you feel like somebody else is playing. 
Yeah, yeah. There is another type of game where it's like a win condition, and they're specifically designed solo. Uh, what reminds me of uh, that style of plays, like Friday, for example, which I really enjoyed. Super hot, also, uh, which are designed as single player games. I guess the Onirem series as well. Those are kind of unique as well. But yeah, uh, those are specifically designed as one uh, single player games, and when the game is designed like that, usually it's not like related to points. It's a win condition which works really well as well but uh, those are kind of an exception i think um i think regular games that you can play with other people work well with, when there's a bot i think that's a really good solution to that because it's pretty hard to adapt the game uh, to make it like work two ways i guess co-op games are very similar to those solo games with a win condition right so yeah yeah but yeah, yeah, the solo games are interesting. I think they're kind of hit and miss for me. I've uh, played some quite a few times. I was kind of uh, playing the campaign, so to speak, of Kepler 3042. I haven't played it for like two months. So maybe I've been thinking about going back and trying it, uh, picking it up again, because it was a fun game, uh, which also is kind of very solitaire. But you're trying to reach a point threshold, and it was interesting enough, I guess. Very kind of lonely still, but interesting enough, I guess. So yeah, solo gaming. Yeah, it's it's been gaining popularity because of 2020, I think. So lots of games, people look for the solo variants. I keep seeing on Facebook groups like uh, comments about playing games alone and stuff. Kind of sad, actually, because I think it's not a good way to play board games. But uh, if you must, you have to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I think, I think um, any any major game coming out nowadays is going to have uh solo player um variant i think it's like yeah. i said it's been gaining popularity so yeah and i'm i'm not opposed to it i don't enjoy it as much but i have found that if if it does have the aspects we we just talked about kind of simulating other players it's more enjoyable for sure anyway so that's uh that's a couple games i've been playing solo i, I do you have any other uh games mm, you want to nope, talk about that's it yep all right let's move on to our topic what we look for in a good game store. All right, so what do you look for in a game store, Risto? <laughs> uh, actually, I guess the most obvious thing, which I'll start with, and then we'll talk about some other things, is prices. <laughs> No, nobody uh, cares about prices. Yeah, no one really cares about prices. Yeah, that's right. It's not called the store for a reason, like shop, you know. They local, don't even sell things. Game you just shop. take games. Yeah, yeah. No, actually, uh, prices are important. There are other dimensions that we can talk about later on, but the the foremost thing that a game store should have is good prices, I think. Um, I kind of don't really... Uh, I mean, it's nice to have like good, decent customer service or something. With board games, I feel like it's more like of a commodity or something. For me personally, I'm obviously a huge nerd, and we're on a podcast and stuff, so I don't look for input from the store seller. You know, like the like which games are good or whatever. You know what I mean? That kind of input. So all I care about is a place where I can buy games for the 
pretty good prices because they're all shrink wrapped and they're all the same so it's not like you know different from one store to the other if you look at the if you look at the games as a commodity i mean so yeah um there are stores which sell at msrp which uh exist out there and uh to me it's kind of crazy that they do because there are stores which sell under msrp and uh kind of more competitive pricing i guess and those are the stores that i generally would like to shop at just in general so yeah yeah i've always kind of wondered <laughs> well i like matter i like low prices that's that's <laughs> that's my feelings on prices no yeah it's it's interesting i've, I've kind of wondered what the economics are for these stores you know obviously everybody has to sell at some sort of profit from what they got it at to stay afloat but some stores do that more aggressively than others and i'm interested if they you know how successful they are at that you know there's a couple of stores um well there's this one store particularly in utah that has several locations throughout the state and they sell at definitely msrp and they seem to be fine you know, not uh, not dying or anything. So maybe they stay alive on on other in income streams because you'll go into these stores and um, you know the product doesn't seem to move super fast, right? Um, especially if you're selling games there on clearance, other uh, at other places still at full <laughs> at full price. Um, but yeah, I I do appreciate and I tend to favor stores that are aware of you know that aren't tone deaf to what people are looking for in terms of prices you know because there's in the world of amazon and and all these other uh, larger on online board game retailers it's kind of i think maybe a mistake to kind of stick to your guns and fall on that sword by keeping everything at msrp because your your buyers will just go elsewhere i think in in unless they're just kind of not interested in price shopping and you know maybe waiting for something to arrive in the mail maybe that's kind of their shtick is that you well know, you don't have to wait the game's right here yeah no i i don't know there is uh, multiple dimensions to a game store but yeah if you're talking about like i say games is purely a commodity and just like going and picking up something i'd rather it be at uh, lower uh, it's yeah it's kind of crazy to me i think uh, actually a lot of the stores how they survive is on unfortunately magic the gathering is how i would and other ccgs lcgs um i think the stores which i really like are more focused on board games almost exclusively or just like very uh kind of uh, emphasis on board games i should say um, even though obviously you'd be kind of crazy to ignore magic completely or like miniatures or rpgs or something as a game store because those products have a lot of pull for customers as well uh, but i think like a lot of stores really focus on um, lcg ccgs as a way to keep them alive and i think a lot of people who buy from there are just kind of like maybe family customers which are not super hardcore price shoppers you know they buy one board game per year or something like that so they're not as nerdy as yeah. us i guess that's probably true yeah i i think that that's a big part of what keeps those stores running so you, you if you get a a loyal following of of people who are you know in the magic circles or whatever and they're using your store as the shop then you know you 
in in non-COVID times, you're having events weekly, several times a week. Maybe you sell beverages and snacks and food and stuff. So there's kind of that that other economy of not just selling board games. But- yeah. Speaking of which, yeah, what do you think about the other stuff in the board game store, which is not just games on shelves and basically like a warehouse? <laughs> <laughs> which I think there are some other things which matter apparently in board game stores. Yeah. Um, so apart from just having a great selection of games and having good prices, um, well, something I would mention with price too before we move on is rewards programs. So I think I think that uh, stores that reward you for repeat. Um, business at their location that's a really good thing especially if they um, also check the box of having competitive pricing um, for products so if they are giving you points or like that accumulate into in-store cash or or whatever it is uh, basically incentives to keep you coming back to the store i appreciate those types of programs Um, but non-board games um, i think it's a really good idea for game stores to have um, clean and attractive play areas. And what I mean by that is have tables that are designed to fit the types of games that you want people playing in your store. Um, Right. So if you want miniatures people to be there and spending money at your store, you're going to have to have some large tables um, to accommodate those games. If you want uh, magic, gather magic the gathering gatherings <laughs> at your gatherers. store <laughs> yeah gatherers <laughs> at your store you're gonna have to have a lot of seating capacity right because those tournaments would bring in a lot of people if you're gonna want board game uh people to come in and play games there and buy games you're gonna need um chairs that don't smell like bo you're gonna <laughs> need tables that look like they've been washed in the last 30 years uh you know that that type of simple stuff <laughs> yeah it's kind of funny but i do have notes about yeah just uh, kind of yeah i uh, if you're gonna sit down and play board games uh, which a lot of board game stores like have tables they're not just uh most i'd say like yeah i don't know if i've actually been to a board game store without tables to sit down so that's a weird like board game store only thing where you're also encouraged to play games at the stores generally yeah there's tables there and yeah they should be good i was gonna say something about lighting as well i think lighting is really important because with board games uh kind of darker and uh just bad lighting or like weird colors or something that could really affect kind of the games you play because you want to be able to see colors you want to be able to see clearly in a lot of board games lots of small uh, kind of like numbers letters reading cards there's a lot of reading so it's kind of like a reading environment almost uh but yeah tables lighting chairs really important um i don't know how i feel about there's a component of like uh cafes board game cafes and like drinks and food generally i think like when food is introduced in my opinion it kind of makes the environment more casual so to speak um i sound like an elitist or something like no no food (laughs) come off your high horse no no food just games um just serious games some Uh, of us eat to stay alive but yeah no i i think food is um kind of like uh weird 
thing because generally it doesn't go super well with board games, I'd say. So if you're offering like certain types of foods that are messy, like I don't know about how it combines with playing board games in my mind. Uh, drinks, definitely better. Uh, but yeah, that's... In my opinion, it kind of makes it into more like a pub environment or something if you're offering food or like a cafe where you kind of want to play shorter games or easier games and just kind of leave. Um, it's not a super hardcore like Euro environment, in my opinion, if if there's food and, and uh, drinks being offered. Maybe a coffee is fine or something, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like if it's like a cafe or a restaurant or something almost. Yeah, and I get nervous. This is just you know, my own idiosyncrasies i i I get nervous when people bring certain types of food around if i'm bringing my games right because i i like to keep my games in in good condition and you know i'm not running a convention library with my own games so the games i have are games that i've bought and ones that i want to keep um, well maintained and so I'm okay with certain types of food, and I think it's a good idea for stores to have like drinks and snacks and things, so that you can keep people in your store and and you know it's convenient. But yeah, I, I get not wanting to have, um, like, I guess you know full on meals. Although I have been to places where it's kind of like a pub that also has like a game library which is kind of a fun experience but that's not the type of environment that really lends to like heavy gameplay so i guess it just depends on what type of environment do you want to create for your customers and then that's also limited by what space you have like this one place i went to up in seattle one time actually has like three sections of their store one of one section is like a retail section that just has games on shelves. Another section is just a full-on play section, which just has you know tables and everything like you would expect to see. And then walled off from the rest of the store is a restaurant that has like booth tables that are big enough to put games on and have food, and you can get games from the library um, at that place and bring them into the restaurant. So it's kind of kind of a cool environment, but yeah, not every not every store can be that. Um, so I think you just want to be mindful of what environment do you want to create for your customers and who are your customers, right? Because you can't just pull customers out of thin air. You kind of have to know your demographic. Yeah. I was going to say also in connection with that, I guess location is the obvious one. Um, yeah, it kind of matters where you are. Uh, I Well, the store we go to, which is Demolition Games, uh, is kind of more centrally located to all of us. I don't know if it's actually in the best area for a board game store. There's a lot of like kind of grimy, weird stuff going on around there in the area that it's in. But uh, obviously the closest to you, <laughs> the better. But who are you? I don't know. Maybe like a central location in the city where everyone can go to, which is also nice. Like I say, environment is big. Um, I think if it's going to be in certain areas, it's going to attract different types of people. So, and some people are just like not going to go there to play games if it's in certain like not so good areas. You know what I mean? Like it just yeah. it just attracts different types of people depending on where it's located. But uh, yeah, locations obviously important as well. Even like outside, uh, not even just how the store looks inside, but what yeah, what it's you kind of like, want it to be welcoming. Yeah, you know, if yeah. you're going to go there often and stay there you you want it to be in an area where you're 
not worried if someone's breaking into your car or whatever. Speaking of which, what about rules? I was actually thinking about that. I don't know if you have any opinions about... I don't know. We went to a, actually a board game store which had the language rules, apparently. I don't know if it was really posted, but... Uh, yeah, no, no swearing apparently, and I don't know. It was kind of, kind of funny actually. Not really offensive. Like I'm not like, ooh, I need to swear or something. But uh, just kind of struck me as weird because the uh, store we go to doesn't really care about language or whatever. I mean, some people have complained, but it's not a big deal. So yeah, what are you, what are your feelings about that, or just kind of in general store rules? Uh, just going along with rules, actually, we've, I think I've seen some funny screenshots about like taking showers and stuff, which is very unfortunate. But uh, for some reason, it's necessary around like conventions and board game stores in particular and stuff. <laughs> so I don't know. I've I've seen some really funny signs and discussions about like whether that's like a good idea or something on board game geek so it does pop up as an unfortunate topic i guess you should say yeah I, I think that the rule that everybody ought to follow is just be respectful of other people <laughs> you know and that includes like keeping yourself clean if somebody smells horrible i would very much appreciate the store actually like saying hey you know you need to <laughs> you need to go shower and then come back we'd love to have you so i I think that, you know, and like in terms of language, it doesn't bother me, but it might bother somebody else. So if you're, if you're playing with a group that doesn't care about language, just maybe be mindful of if there's people around you and, or if you're having this like an open meetup and people come just kind of, you know, be mindful of who, you know, what sensitivities people have, because you want people to have fun and, and be in a good environment and if you if you kind of cross the line maybe you know it's i think it's being respectful is you know kind of apologizing to the person and just kind of like creating an environment an inviting atmosphere um and you know if if a certain store or group or whatever doesn't have the atmosphere that appeals to you then there are plenty of other atmospheres or stores or groups to 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 play with so i think there's a place for everybody but Certainly, you don't. I, I don't think that you have to necessarily police people and micromanage them. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, well, uh, some places actually don't really have the selection. We're kind of lucky, I guess, here locally in Salt Lake, at least, where we have a decent selection of several game stores. I've heard of places where actually um, there's one or something, or. Um, and there, there's actually an interesting comment about uh, people like saying like support local and stuff, but uh, there is a good argument argument to be had about that of like, what if your game store, local game store actually don't like it or something, you know, like the people that are selling you games just really just don't care about you Kill at all. It. And like <laughs> they're, they're rude to you and like the environment is bad. Like, I don't know if you should support them, you know what I mean? Like they should, like, it's obviously not like just because they're local, they yeah. need to be supported. I think they need to like, like make an effort or something, you know, to not be horrible <laughs> as yeah, a game 100% store. Yeah, 100% agree. I, I don't <laughs> but, think that a game store should be supported just because it is a local store. I think if it's a good local game store, my preference is to support them. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, like 
demolition games in particular that we go to a lot they've they check a lot of good boxes you know they have good selection of games at uh, good prices and so if if i have an option of buying a game online or buying a game from demolition i tend to unless i'm impatient <laughs> uh, yeah. i tend to go with with demolition just because i like to support that store but um but yeah, I, I guess I wasn't really thinking of some people don't really have the option. So yeah, I, I, again, I think everybody ought to just be respectful and, and stores ought to be mindful of enforcing a respectful atmosphere. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but yeah, again, going back to, I think we're there are some areas where, where there's a lot of kind of like board gaming going on for some reason actually speaking of seattle i think uh seattle's uh just in general yeah i guess seattle area for some reason i think is really good for that i think actually salt lake is actually pretty good for that as well there are certain areas i think in the country where for some reason there's more board gaming going on so i think we're kind of lucky that there's a lot of interest in board games around here in general cold areas with rain or snow <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> actually that might be true yeah i think kind of the, the certain areas in Canada are really popular as well, like Vancouver, I've heard, and Quebec. And yeah, just, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, maybe it has to do with bad weather. It's true. <laughs> Completely true. Yeah. So, yep. But anyway, yeah, that's kind of all I had about board game stores. Um, yeah, one, I think... one thing... Uh, oh, go ahead, sorry. No, go ahead, yeah. I was just going to throw in one more thought um, that I... Uh, well, actually, maybe two quick thoughts... Um, you mentioned, I don't think it's really that important for maybe our particular demographic that we have someone that to talk us through buying a game. Um, but I do think it's important for board game store owners and their employees to be knowledgeable. Um, and that doesn't mean that you have to know everything about every game or every type of game. But I think you ought to, you know, kind of know how to answer questions of people coming into your store you know if, if it's at least with like popular or new games people coming in and ask it i've, I've gone into stores and asked questions before and like the person i've talked to just kind of like is clueless waterboard games <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah um and so, and and I have you know seen conversations or observed people who come into a game store and and like have played a game that they're really jazzed about, but then they don't know what else is out there. So I think it's really valuable for um, an employee of a game store to be able to make recommendations or kind of know what's happening in the industry, so that it, you know your your customers basically trust you. I think is I think that's valuable, but again. You know, I, I wouldn't expect every employee to know like all the cards that are coming out with Magic the Gathering. You know, maybe you have an employee that's at your store that just kind of does that, and you have another employee that knows a lot about the the board games. Maybe you have a miniatures guy at your store or a girl or yeah, whatever. Actually, that's a good point because I think in theory, yeah, it sounds really good, but in practice, it's really tough sometimes to get people to be knowledgeable about both like rpgs and magic and board games because there's like super niche specific specific hobbies and usually actually people are not interested in 
the other side which is kind of weird with like tabletop gaming because like usually the magic people don't care about rpgs or miniatures and board gamers don't care about rpgs or miniatures or magic and like rpg people don't care about board games you know what i mean like it's really weird and like we all have like our different interests <laughs> with yeah with the hobby and there's not much overlap but yeah i, I think there should be if you're like spe specifically selling board games and want to specialize there should definitely the store employee should definitely know like like just really basic stuff i mean about board games like like you say not super specific whatever but basic knowledge of board games is necessary yeah, yeah. uh actually so that, that reminds me of something uh i forgot to put on the list but as you were talking i something i really enjoy in board game stores uh which actually the demolition doesn't have is a used game section or some stores have started started experimenting with a consignment section where people just like drop off their games and they're being sold on a shelf or something and the the store takes like five or ten percent of the price for yeah. like just listing them so to speak or whatever so that's an interesting idea where there's a couple of other stores which do that uh, really well uh, i've bought some used games from them because it's just yeah it's uh, convenient it's nice and uh if you know what you're looking for you can get some game that you're interested in that might be out of print or something that's completely missing it's uh, demolition for example and that's really a cool thing to do to do i think in general yeah um, and to, to clarify that's this is not an a clearance section yeah yeah this is like people coming in and like i want to sell my game to you kind yeah. of a section yeah I think that I think a used game section is pretty is a is a cool thing to have. Um, it it runs the risk of kind of looking like a hoarder spot. <laughs> um, yeah. But but you know that's another thing is game stores just like stay organized, be mindful of your presentation, and I I, I agree with you. I think that having a used section is actually a pretty cool thing because not only does it allow other people to kind of pass on games that they aren't playing anymore but it creates opportunity for people who are actually looking for certain games to just find a hidden gem somewhere you know it's you walk into a store and you're like oh my gosh i can't find this game anymore because it's out of print but here it is yeah yeah uh also, I guess you didn't mention, but like if you want people to sit down to have a demo library, which is actually decent, uh, that's usually also enabled by publishers who send you demo copies I've seen um, of games. So specifically for like demo section. Yeah. So I think that's a really good idea. And uh, uh, there are some stores around the valley which have like amazing demo sections because they've been in business for like 20 years and there's even out of print games in the demo section that you can just yeah. pick up and play which is really cool uh, or just kind of older games and just a large selection sometimes so I think that's pretty crucial if you want random people to come in and play in your store and, and along with that that's a good point um, I think it's also a neat concept when uh, the stores allow you to rent games yeah that's i've thought about that as well yeah it's it's good i guess yeah particularly with um i think it could be a way to boost sales actually you know like especially new games coming out there's tons of games coming out all the time so if if you're able as a store to get one of the hot new games as a demo that you can rent to people i may i'm thinking maybe that would boost your sales too if you're able to also um have 
enough copies of that game to sell. But maybe maybe I'm just kind of kidding myself because people that want to buy that game will buy it anyway. <laughs> they don't, they don't <laughs> yeah, necessarily maybe. have to rent it first, but it, it might help. But rentals, I think it's a, yeah, rentals are a cool idea. I think actually uh, it takes a lot of effort to run all these things, though. Uh, like you say, used games can end up looking like basically just a bunch of trash. Yep. And the way to not make it look like a bunch of trash is actually to have someone who understands what like kind of desirable games are and not take trash, which no one is going to buy ever. Uh, and that takes kind of knowledge of board games. And I think that's why it's actually really difficult to have a good used game section, to have like board game rentals because you have to check the components maybe when people return the game so like a lot of kind of effort (laughs) and a lot of people just want to just sell board games which i guess works but all those other programs are really cool yeah and just one last thing i wanted to mention uh that kind of goes into that a little bit is um i think that game stores kind of are missing out on a lot when they don't have a good website or social media presence. Um, Because in my view, having a good social media presence um, does two things for a a local store. First, it, it helps build kind of a sense of community around your store. So if people, you know, go to your store and they see your post, they follow them and make comments on it. It it kind of builds a sense of loyalty to your store, perhaps. And then it also provides an opportunity to advertise um, what you have, right? So if you're getting in, you know, I've seen um, particularly Demolition, I've seen Demolition have like five copies of super, super popular hot new games that I on BGG forums, people are like, I can't find this game anywhere, right? But there's like five copies sitting on a shelf <laughs> at, a, <laughs> at a local store. And I'm like, no, I've seen this game. Um, so if you have a good social media presence to get advertise that out there, I think you're going to bring in a lot more people because they know what you have. And, and you know, that's just on the board game side. And obviously you want to build a good community for the recurring things like, I guess, miniatures and magic and all that. Uh, but I think... Yeah. I think if a store doesn't have an online presence, it's kind of detrimental to the store. Yeah, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword. I'm not sure if I'm crazy about advertising in general. And the other way to do that actually is to run events, which some board game stores have gotten into. I've personally actually gotten some invitations from people that I know of like, come play board games at this store and stuff and uh, whatever. Uh, Sometimes they can feel kind of forced um, is the flip side of that, like those events. uh, It's kind of like, here's a game, play it now. And it's sometimes actually games that the store would like to sell also is something i've noticed i noticed you have 20 copies of this game over there it's like uh it's almost like oh now that you've played this game take a look at that shelf over there where there's all those copies sitting and we'd like to sell them but um i don't know like there there can be a right way to to get that done and kind of a wrong way to get that done so it's a fine balance i think of like trying to push sales too hard and look like a used car salesman or something versus like just trying to foster a good game night with good games you know yeah. so it's like it's a pretty fi- fine balance it just kind of seems a little strange at times when you kind of at least the outward appearance is that a, a store buys good games and then just kind of hopes that people will come in and see them 
as opposed <laughs> to doing like what you say, you know, build a community, advertise kind of what your store is about, maybe tell people when a cool new game arrives, like, hey, look, everybody, we just got this game in. It's it's in stock or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's a fouling line because you don't want to come off as like pushy and just become all about sales. Um, but I think it is a good idea for a store to have an online presence. Yep. But anyway, that's it. That's all I have for board game stores. Yeah, that's all I got. So let's cool. move on to games on our horizon. The only game that I kind of have this week, I haven't really been looking around uh, Kickstarter a lot. Actually, I should say I did look at... Uh, Castles of Mad King Ludwig last week, and I'm. It was kind of a painful decision actually because I am realizing that more and more I am kind of ignoring games, and it's kind of tough because I like uh, Mad King. Uh, gosh, what's it called the Castles of Mad King Ludwig? It's like the most wordy title ever in the history of board games. But uh, I already have the game, and I really haven't played my copy. <laughs> and they're already coming out with like a, basically the same game with some updated art and a larger version of the game, like physically larger, kind of like a King Domino huge edition or whatever, which was popular around conventions. And then they decided to actually sell it because it was popular around conventions. Um, and it was really expensive. I think the huge edition with everything, everything all in was like 200 bucks or something. And I was just like thinking to myself, well, maybe I don't care about like the new art and the minimal new like uh, expansions that they have or whatever. Maybe I'm fine with just having the old game and I think it's a fine game and I enjoy it and I'll just kind of stick with that and be happy. And I'm kind of finding out that there's that's kind of more and more my attitude, especially if the game goes like above $100 for an updated edition. I think that's kind of ridiculous, especially for a, kind of a lighter game like yeah, that. Yeah, I was going to say a high price point for a game that's not much of a game. <laughs> it's, that's yeah. kind of hard, unless you it just is, love it. Yeah, it is a fun game. And yeah, if I had played it like 30 times or something and worn out my components because I've played it so much, I probably would be interested. But I don't think that's the case. Have you played so your think, copy? No, <laughs> that's, that's, what I was, <laughs> that's what I was saying. I've played other people's copies, but uh, actually it, it is a game that I need to play more because it's kind of an auctioning game and I think Brandon would like it. Good candidates for Thursdays. But anyway, uh, so yeah, just kind of a comment that I'm kind of cooling down a lot on just buying new games, especially when they're remakes of old games with better art and just larger components for an insane price. So I don't know, kind of tough though, because I definitely struggled with that one. I was just like, the FOMO is real. <laughs> um, speaking of FOMO, another game which I haven't played... <laughs> <laughs> but, but looks really good. We should good. have top 10 games Riso hasn't played in his yeah, collection. Actually, actually, yeah, that's someone suggested that, and I think it's a really good idea. Um, this is uh, Clinic, and it's already getting a second and third expansion, which he calls them extensions because he's French, and I think extension is like cooler maybe in French or something. Just kidding. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, this is uh, by this random guy, and it's the publisher so i can't remember his name but i'll look up his name um he's a math teacher actually and he designs these really like kind of 
super thinky games. Tramways comes to mind in Clinic. Alban Viard, yeah. Uh, he even has his own website. Um, kind of an interesting, like breed of uh, designer and successful actually but tramways is maybe his bigger game other than clinic and i guess small city as well um, or card city excel those are oh age of steam he makes a lot of age of steam maps i guess um but yeah clinic is a game where you treat people at the hospital uh and i actually can't remember even the specific uh specific mechanics um it just looks looks really cool uh from what i've heard it's incredibly thinky and like ap inducing and it's got a 3d element to it you play on three floors i think of the clinic or something and you have to manage like this kind of 3d personal board in front of you with departments and doctors and where they are assigned and all that stuff uh looked really cool so just kind of i'm probably gonna get it with the hopes that i will actually play this game someday which i still haven't um kind of a very involved game but that's the only thing that's kind of on my radar this week and it actually i'm it, i'm looking at the kickstarter which ends in like uh an hour and a half <laughs> actually <laughs> go, 45 yeah minutes. you should you should go so. back this because i want to play it uh really you're interested that's good yeah um, um i've heard somebody kind of describe it as like lacerda level crunchy yeah, yeah, the crunch is real with his games. We played Tramways with Justine and Matt, and um, I was just like, holy crap. The game doesn't look like very much like when you look at it, but when you start playing it, it's kind of like pipeline, basically, with the pipes. It uh, doesn't look like much, but when you start playing it, you're just like, blah, and your brain is just, <laughs> just like melting inside your head. And well, part of that is because Ian O'Toole is involved in the in the graphic design and stuff. So it, it, he's really, really good at making a game that is complex look very um, inviting, which is kind of what happens with all the Lacerda games, right? The, the game looks really inviting, but you get into it and sometimes like, oh my gosh, my brain's falling out of my ears. Yeah, and like it takes one play to just kind of learn the game, which is a little bit unfortunate with uh, these kind of games because basically you can't play, just play it once and forget it, uh, which actually is good if you want the game to be replayable. But yeah, uh, also, oddly enough, as I look at the Kickstarter solo game, um, like I say, 2020 has done a number on these games, I guess. I never would have believed that Clinic would be getting a solo mode because i think it's really complex i don't know if it's good but he's introducing that as well so yeah uh definitely looking forward to playing this game and i'll probably get it because i'm kind of a fan of the designer and, and he's kind of like model he basically sells the games out of his own website as well so it's this like i say math teacher from france that designed like successful games and he just made a website and now he's running kickstarters which do okay with these kind of complex games so yep yeah, you should uh, go spend your money so we can play it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sounds good. Uh, yeah. Challenge accepted. <laughs> All right. Um, I just have two games that I'm looking forward to that I'll mention really quickly. Um, one, because it just delivered the Kickstarter Steampunk Rally Fusion. Um, I actually did not play the original Steampunk Rally, um, but am really excited to play this. I think it's... I mean, it's a racing game where you're uh, historical figures just kind of building a steampunk machine that's continually falling apart. 
and exploding as you're trying to be the first one to cross the finish line or I guess be the furthest one along. And it seems like there's a pretty cool um, system here where you're just build. I mean, it's a drafting games. And, and as you're drafting, you're putting these cards into your machine and just kind of building this steampunk looking monstrosity that you then put dice on and gears and, and things to activate abilities. And it seems like it's just going to be a ton of chaos. And like, I think it's going to be kind of a Lamau game where you're just, <laughs> you're just like laughing and having fun. Um, and then you might not have fun when you explode and then go behind everybody else. But I think... I think it's going to be fun. Uh, Hariso and I, I think both backed it. It just arrived, and I'm really looking forward to getting it to the table, actually. Yeah, I played the first one. It's really good for what it is. Um, it's one of the few complicated drafting games you can play with so many people. Uh, I think seven or something, which is yeah, insane for like, like this type of game. You do have to trust people with understanding the game because you literally can't watch seven people like run the complicated engine building game with yeah, uh, and it's all dice placement. Right? And it's all simultaneous, yeah. So like uh, you just hope people are playing correctly. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, really, really cool game, really thematic. Like Trevor saying, you're like uh it kind of it's kind of like wacky races the game like your car is exploding and falling apart as you're trying to get to the finish line and sometimes you finish with just like your cockpit and it's just kind of hilarious and but it's, <laughs> it's really good i think and something i saw that i had completely forgotten from the kickstarter campaign is that one of the promo characters that came with the the kickstarter um is red green do you do you know that show no, I don't know. So it's a, I think it's an old Canadian show. It's just, it's just a funny Canadian show of these two guys that uh, are kind of like handymen and wear red flannel shirts and live out in the boonies. And um, duct tape is the fix for everything. <laughs> it's the handyman's tool. So it's, just, I just thought it was hilarious that they put those two in in the game as promos. It's funny. Um, yeah. But anyway, that's Steampunk Rally Fusion. Looking forward to playing that. Uh, the other game um, I'm looking forward to playing is a 2020 release. It's called Whistle Mountain. Um, this is a game designed by Scott Caputo and Luke Lowry, published by Bézier uh, Games. And this is a follow-up of sorts to Whistle Stop, which is um, I have not played, but it's more of a I, train I game. I was going to say, I actually looked at it, and it's. I don't think it's a follow-up. I think it's a game in the same universe, but it doesn't really have anything to do with Whistle yes, Stop. Yes, that's Whistle exactly Stop right. has like completely different mechanics, so it just has the same name. Yeah, I think um, the, the, the thematic tie is that you take all of the money you made from playing Whistle Stop and then go spend it in Whistle Mountain. <laughs> that's quite a stretch. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Because, I mean, the game's really... I'm very excited to play it. It seems really cool. Um, just the basic concept is kind of... It's a worker placement game. Um, but what you're doing is you're building this scaffolding um, up a mountain, maybe building a dam. And what you're doing is... Uh, on the scaffolding, you get resources from, I think, placing scaffolding. And then you can build engines on top of the scaffolding that are the worker placement spots. So you're kind of constructing your board as you go and making the spots. And then you have these like 
dirigibles and uh, hot air balloons that kind of fly around and help you fill spaces on the board. And you can get upgrades for those to, to do actions, I think. And then as the game goes on, water starts building up inside the dam, which can actually drown your workers <laughs> and send them into like this whirlpool area um, that where you have to rescue them or their negative points at the end of the game. Um, so I, uh, I, I did pick up a copy of this game. I'm excited to play it because it, it seems like a fun and, and innovative twist on uh, worker placement, which I tend to enjoy. So that's uh, Whistle Mountain. All right. Sounds good. That's all the games I had. So if that's it, that's it. That is it. All right. Well, yeah. Thanks for listening to us and we will see you in a couple of weeks. Cards and Cubes has been a production of Pod Cauldron. Check out some other great podcasts on the Pod Cauldron Network, including Bub Club, a horror movie podcast, Rabble Rabble Rabble, a comedic look at current events, and Steady Diet of Music, a bi-weekly fix of opinions by musicians. You can get a hold of Cards and Cubes via email, Cards and Cubes podcast at gmail.com or visit our website www.cardsandcubes.com We'd like to thank Kirsten Adams for designing our logo. Find more of Kirsten's art on Instagram at catcoffee, that's K-A-T-C-O-F-F-E-E We'd also like to thank Lindsay Hobbs for composing the theme and thank all of you for listening and we will return in a couple of weeks.